American automakers invested heavily in China and for years enjoyed great growth. Now they're losing sales and profits are declining to Chinese automakers. On this week's show, Michael Dunn, an expert on the Chinese auto industry, shares his insights and warnings about what is likely to happen. Underwriting for the production of AutoLine this week has been provided by RSM. for challenges specific to your business by working with trusted advisors who help turn obstacles into opportunities. Experience the power of being understood. RSM, audit, tax, and consulting for the middle market. And now, here's your host, John McElroy. Thanks for joining us. Topic today, all about China, of course. China auto industry and U.S. auto industry. And the reason we're talking about China is we got an expert on the set today. Michael Dunn is the CEO of a company called Zozo Go. That's it. Zozo. Zozo. Yeah, go. Let's go. Okay, let's go. (laughs) Really good. I like that name of the company. Also joining us today, Michelle Krebs, an analyst with Cox Automotive, and Joe White with Reuters. And great to have the both of you here. Thank you. Michael, let's jump right into it here. I mean... U.S. China, what is going on here? Are we going to have uh, tariffs on these cars? As we tape the show, there's a lot of uncertainty. Yeah. Maybe by the time it airs, things could change. But what do you think is going to play out here? It's, it's, the situation is almost explosive right now on both sides. High stakes, and China has ambitions to go global. The United States wants to protect its own market from an onslaught of Chinese exports. Look for the Trump administration to put in place tariffs on Chinese cars as high as they possibly can for as long as they possibly can. Okay, what if a Democrat comes in in the 2020 election and wins? Do you think things would change then? The mood in Washington, D.C., both sides of the aisle right now is China's really had its way with us. They can walk into our market easily with little or no barriers. The same is not true going to China. So Washington has come to the conclusion that they want China to be a reciprocal partner. Whatever terms we engage going into their market, they'll face the same here. And Mike, it's not just about vehicles, right? Mm-hmm. It's, about, it's about technology. Yes, and yes, that's AI, right. artificial intelligence, all that stuff, right? That's maybe even more critical than the actual body and white. The tariffs are almost a sidebar. You're exactly right. The real crucial issue is technology. And a few years ago, China developed this policy called Made in China 2025, where they set out ambitions to be number one globally in electric vehicles, autonomous vehicles, AI, robotics, advanced manufacturing across the board. If it's high tech, China wants to lead, not follow. And so this has implications for the United States. We've always been the leader, the standard setter. What if China jumps out in front? That's why where the big stakes are. Yeah, the standard setting part is really important. Mm. Yeah. Well, that and it and the electric vehicle. It's already the electric vehicle market, the biggest electric vehicle market. Mm-hmm. What happens to the U.S.? We we seem to be lagging, not even second, maybe even mm. third. Yeah. Third. That's right. China's way out in front last year. About sixty percent of total EV production globally happened in China. Europe, second, and. United States coming in third. And without proper policies in place, we can expect a different conclusion. Tesla's moving into China now, Mercedes, Volkswagen in a big way. 
So it's not just about the sales, though. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we don't have organic uh, demand for EVs, but, mm -hmm. the, but you lose that technology leadership, I would think. That's exactly right. The battery, the battery management systems, the entire supply chain is now beginning to concentrate in the People's Republic of China. And once that's established, it's going to be hard to catch up. Do you think anybody in China is making money on their electric cars? Certainly in the U.S. and Europe, they're not making a dime. In fact, they're losing thousands of dollars on every single one they sell. Great point. Up until now, no one's found the magic recipe to make money on an electric vehicle unless you get subsidies from the government. And in China's case, there's been hundreds of billions of dollars flowing to automakers to get them to make and sell cars to, to consumers. But as you know, they just throttled back on those they have. incentives. They have. But cleverly, they've shifted the onus for subsidizing electric vehicle sales to the manufacturers themselves. How do they do that? Starting this year, 10% of anything that GM or Volkswagen or Honda sells in China has to be electrified. It's up to the automaker to make sure they meet that quota or pay stiff fines. So in, in essence, the automakers are now going to be subsidizing electric vehicles, not the government. Does that, does that lead to, a, I mean, for years people have been saying there's got to be a shakeout in China. It's like the United States in 1915 mm -hmm. with a zillion car companies. It's unsustainable. Does, do you think that, that we're finally at that moment or is it, you know, we're going to say, ask you the same question in five years? There's so much capacity, way over capacity in China, 46 million units of capacity versus 30 million in production. So there should be a shakeout and a consolidation. But what are the Chinese thinking? We'll use this capacity to go global. We'll ship our products everywhere. So they're not thinking consolidation within China. They're thinking, how do we reach our capacity? And that means shipping out. But here you've got the U.S. about to throw on yes. tariffs, almost for sure. If we do it, Europe's going to be right behind us, yes. I've got to believe. In fact, a lot of countries in the world are going to say, no, as long as they make cars. If they don't make cars, I think they'll open the doors because then they'll get cheap cars. That's Cheaper right. Ca I don't mean cheap in a bad way. I mean much less expensive Affordable. Cars. Affordable. For nice developed cars. consumers right. in developing markets, a good fit for China. Right. Now, one other way out of this jam is for the Chinese to commit to investing in the United States to produce their vehicles. So not exporting from China, but no. creating jobs, bringing capital. Uh, and the last time you were here, mm -hmm. we talked about all the companies that you, you, your title of your talk was that Chinese aren't just coming, they're already here. Mm -hmm. So they've already been doing a lot of laying the groundwork. They for that, have, right? they have. Up in, uh, as of now, there are already over 100 Chinese suppliers and tech companies operating in the United States, two big concentrations. The biggest one is right here in Michigan and the second biggest is in California. That suppliers and tech companies, over 100 of them wholly owned Chinese companies operating in North America. So people ask me, oh, when are the Chinese coming? Well, we're not seeing the cars except what, arguably Volvo. Yeah. Cadillac. Yeah. Cadillac, Buick. Buick. Uh, but people in their minds think, oh, it doesn't really count until we see a BYD or a Geely. No, they're here, they're poised to enter with their cars when the time is right. Okay, so let's yeah. say they invest here, they start making here. Don't they lose their competitive, uh, their cost advantage versus importing from China? Absolutely. Their, their go-to is to produce cheaply in China and ship overseas, avoid all the complications of investment and getting used to a culture and signing up uh, suppliers for production locally. That, that really makes the situation much more complicated. And we've seen the Chinese now delay plans. GAC was supposed to come in fourth quarter of 2019. Now it's second half of 2020, maybe. Yeah, maybe, right? Maybe. Zote, the American pronunciation, Zote, they're signing up dealers, but again, it seems pretty contingent on favorable trade deals and That's right. various other. 
They're counting on that tariff to come down. Otherwise, I mean, a 25% tariff would really knock them out. But let me come back to the question about sort of the bill, basically why can't the, why can't Chinese automotive sector players and I, and I include suppliers mm -hmm. in that. Why can't they basically replicate what the Japanese, particularly and the Koreans, to, to also have done, which is to build, you know, build an, an infrastructure in, in the United States is still the richest or cert, close to the richest market, mm -hmm. certainly on a per vehicle basis. Mm -hmm. um, it seems like they would be, have a huge incentive to do that. Mm. Um, and what would be the barriers to them doing that? Why wouldn't the United States welcome that? The United States, I believe, government. would, would yeah. welcome that, including the government. If you bring your capital in and you create jobs here and tax revenues, terrific. Bring it in. We've welcomed the Japanese, the Koreans, the Germans, Chinese too, as long as you come inside. Now, from a Chinese perspective, that's so far out, out of their comfort zone on so many levels that they look at that and say, well, that's an option, but it's not looking delicious. We'd still <laughs> like to stay at home and ship them from Guangzhou or from Shanghai. So they haven't mentally made that shift in their own minds. Oh, wait a second, actually make a full-fledged whole across-the-board uh, investment in the United States? That looks a little scary. You talked in a talk you gave earlier this week about their um, forays into artificial inte mm -hmm. intelligence. You kind of scared a number of us mm -hmm. with the whole uh, uh, face recognition thing. Could, could you talk about that and how that plays with what we do here? Yes, uh, the, the experts I've listened to in artificial intelligence say data is a huge component. The more data you have to process, the more quickly the machine learns. And in China, they have vacuum cleaners for data in the, in the form of 300 million individual cameras right across the country watching all of our movements uh, from the time you step in the country until the time you leave if you're a Chinese citizen, 24-7. They, they even have something called a social credit score. So if your behavior socially isn't up to par, you may not be allowed to board a plane, take a train, your son might not be able to get into a college of choice because you didn't pay taxes four years ago. They're really tightening down on um, data about individual behavior and then that data flows into the artificial intelligence, which really gives them an edge over us in the United States. And that seems like, to me, I mean, and I know this is kind of a, a soft side sort of a thing, but it seems like that's a risk for um, U.S. And, and European automakers mm -hmm. to, get to basically to, be, to go into that environment, and they're going to have to play by those rules, right? Yeah. So your Volkswagen in China will have to tell the government where you're at, and you're a Chevy and whatever. And it seems like Yes, those are the rules within China. Outside China, that's, that looks like you're, 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 you're collaborating you know, in a, an, an oppressive regime. Do you think that's a problem? Or do you think that the companies are just like, look, price of poker, biggest market? When in China, do as the Chinese say. They have their rules, and if you're not comfortable with their, your, their rules, you're free to go. Well, no one wants to leave the biggest market, so... That's a reality that all automakers have to reckon with inside China. But to your point, what happens if China starts to extend it and say, these are the standards we'd like to have in Southeast Asia, in Africa. Oh, now much of the geography of the world is covered by a Chinese standard. That's, that's, that's a change of, of great magnitude for all of us. Where do the, oh, go ahead, Michelle. Uh, where, where do the American companies stand in, in, in terms of China? And mm -hmm. I think you mentioned something. They're in retreat right now. And, um, how does that yes. <clears throat> well, if you look around the world in the last five years, um, one at a time, the Detroit Three have either taken down their operations or stepped out of so many different markets. Australia, 
Europe, Russia, Africa, India even, Indonesia, where I used to work. Uh, it essentially, it's boiled down to, well, we have two markets, U.S. And, and China. And if we're not competitive in China, that's our big problem. Now we're, we're, we're a one country horse, uh, one country company. Uh, inside China, they're at risk because as the Chinese develop their own technology and their products get better, we see Chinese consumers moving to the Geely's, BYD's, and Great Walls, and at risk are your mid-market brands like Chevy or Ford. What appeal do they offer a Chinese consumer that they can't get for 10% less through a Geely? That's really a question of relevance and, and, and uh, appeal. And if the, if the government said, as they did with the Japanese makers, we don't want you buying these, that, mm -hmm. that could be a risk as well, right? Absolutely. The Koreans that, got hit with it. Hyundai yeah, got, got hit with exactly. it, right? The Japanese before them, that hammer hasn't fallen yet, but boy, that would be a powerful lever for the, for the Chinese. And they do it in such a way, they don't order consumers not to buy, but they recommend, hey, you have other choices here, maybe steer clear of the American brands for a while. So what Chinese companies do you think are going to do well? Because as you know better than I do, there's state-owned companies and mm -hmm. there's independents. And mm -hmm. the examples that you've been citing, Geely, BYD, I'd throw Great Wall in there perhaps yeah. too, are the independent ones. Uh, do you think the state-owned ones are going to resonate as well mm -hmm. as the independents with Chinese consumers? Really, there's six, big six state-owned enterprises in China. Two of them are worth watching. And one is Shanghai Automotive, which is by far the largest and most profitable and the GM's partner and Volkswagen's partner. They'll be around for a long time. They'll be tough. The other one is Guangzhou Automotive, also profitable, partners with Toyota, Honda, FCA. Uh, and they're just across from Hong Kong. They know how to do business there. Those are the two state enterprises to watch. And they're already setting up export targets for different countries as we speak. And the independents? Independents, like Geely's in a class of its own, if you, many people say, which one is the Toyota of China? If you have to pick one today, it's Geely. They've had sensational success with the Volvo acquisition. They now own Lotus, Proton. It's one, they own 10% of I was just going of, to, uh, a Daimler. Of Daimler. Yeah. The parent of Mercedes-Benz. What yes. do you make of that, of Geely being, I, I, I think it sent a shiver down the spine of the German auto industry. Absolutely, it came out of nowhere. They didn't know about it. Here's Li Shufu, who I've met many times and I know now for 15 years. He grew up on a farm in South Central Zhejiang province, far away from the city, and built his own car company, and then now is the number one shareholder in Daimler. He's, he's kind of the Henry Ford of China. He is. He is. He's a brilliant, uh, mercurial, uh, unpredictable guy, and he, but he has a magic touch. Whatever he's put his hands on has been successful. We also can't leave this discussion without mentioning the other American car company, Tesla, in China. Yes. Uh, they've set things up in a little different way. Does that help them? Absolutely. The first foreign company to be allowed to own 100% of their operation. <laughs> they're in Shanghai. Shanghai will want to make sure they're a success. The, the government will make sure that they've got their plant built on time and uh, they have everything working. Uh, and on top of it all, Chinese consumers really do like the Tesla brand and really admire Elon Musk. So you've got a premium market, mm -hmm. 2 million units a year. You have the government wanting electrics to succeed, and you've got a very strong American brand. So they'd be one to bet on in terms of China. So, I mean, how, I mean, how beholden does Tesla become to, you know, China, and, you know, whatever specific entity, the Shanghai government? 
um, in the sense that it seems like that Chinese plant and the Chinese, all the infrastructure they're building there is being financed by bank loans mm -hmm. from Chinese banks and yeah. Chinese entities. I mean, how, how does that what is, how does that work? I mean, it seems like they're now beholden to some great degree to what, to what Chinese consumers and government officials would like. They're part of the Chinese family, for better or for worse. And as friends of mine in China say, think of the Chinese government as the parents. And they say, would you like to have this little piece of candy? Okay, <laughs> then you should do these things and you will have your piece of candy. Now, it's a little bit of an exaggeration, but not too much. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party has done an amazing job of harnessing the energies of millions of entrepreneurs and foreign companies to innovate, to invest, and to get things done. And so far that formula has worked pretty effectively. Michael, I'd like to hear your thoughts on what they call China speed, uh -huh. how things get done so quickly. You know, Joe just mentioned Tesla and the plant that they're putting in Shanghai. They broke ground this year. Mm -hmm. it's supposed to be building cars by the end of this year. A physical impossibility to do in the United States or probably the Western world. Mm -hmm. I've talked to other Westerners who work for Chinese companies and they're astounded at designers. Mm -hmm. They'll pen something and bang, it seems like the next afternoon there's yeah. a prototype running around. Talk a little bit about that and the challenge that that poses, especially for the U.S. auto industry. Well, in China, in my own experience with my own company and operating in China for a long time, you, you, you have an order that comes on down, down from on high. And once that order is released and understood, everyone goes into action. There's no deliberation. There's no discussion. What are the benefits and costs, environmental impact? No, it's done. Uh, contrast that here with the United States where there's a debate about every step of the way. So this gives China probably one of its greatest advantages. It can move very quickly to establish infrastructure, a new plant, uh, charging stations, you name it. They really have a big edge because there's no debate. The decision is made by the party at the central level or at the city level, and that's it. Is it sustainable in the long run? Because, you know, look, uh, they went hell-bent for leather in <laughs> mm -hmm. economic expansion. They've paid a horrific price mm -hmm. with the pollution that they have. And even though it's cleaning up a little bit, mm -hmm. they're going to live with this for generations to come. So, again, with China speed, is it truly sustainable? If you're not doing environmental impact mm -hmm. statements, mm -hmm. in the long run, does it pay off? Right. Well, from a Chinese point of view, they haven't peaked yet. So in order to peak, that means they're number one in the world across many industries and maybe even the superpower in the world. Uh, Short-term environmental costs or eh, health costs, that's, that's part of the package. And I don't see China backing off its ambitions to slow things down. I just don't see it in their uh, mindset, at least not yet. So given all that, mm -hmm. Mike, do you see the Detroit Three, and I guess I'll make this kind of a narrow Detroit question, but you can mm. broaden it out. I mean, it does seem like the Chinese market, vehicle market, is, is so much larger than the United States mm. market now. It's, it's, it's almost double. Um, um, as you say, the, the Chinese government is uh, pursuing essentially an industrial policy around electrification mm. that um, has real purpose to it and mm. drive. At what point does that basically summon capital investment in a, in, a, in a way that, that, you know, instead of half and half or 60, 40, 70, 30, mm -hmm. you know, U.S. to China, the capital and new investment, it's, you know, the United States is getting, you know, kind of maintenance capital investment to keep the truck lines going. Mm -hmm. And then all the rest of it's flowing to China. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know that's an extreme, but I'll just sort of throw it to you and say, you know, what, doesn't that start to kind of really draw 
money and investment in, in, for future jobs and productivity to China? When I talk to the guys in charge of policy in, inside China, Chinese officials, they say, well, you Americans should understand the importance of being the biggest market in the world. You guys had it for many decades. Guess what? We're number one now, and we understand that capital and technology follows market, and we expect to be number one. If, if we look, look at the continuum, when I first arrived in China 30 years ago, there was nothing going on. They could hardly build cars. There was no money for cars. Today, they're 50% larger than us here in the United States. They're leading in EVs. They're leading in ride-sharing. From their point of view, it's, a, it's going to happen. Within five years, 10 years, they will be the leader. There's no guarantees. Some people call it a great gamble. But from a Chinese point of view, look how far we've come in the last 30 years. What's going to stop us from continuing that? Well, just the demographics are, I mean, they're kind of overwhelming, right? There's a billion. Yeah. A billion, <laughs> 300 million <laughs> Americans, and <laughs> kind of is what it is, right? And the car ownership ratio is still much lower in China than in the United States. Much lower. Chinese, China has more cars on the road today than the United States. I looked at the numbers the other day. 325 in China, about wow. 276 in the U.S. Now, if you ask 100 Americans who has more cars, in fact, I asked my, my aunt earlier today. She goes, oh, no question the U.S. has far more cars than China. China, do they have cars? You know, yeah, they have a <laughs> lot of cars, so... Well, they have four times the population of the United States. They do. So the, the, uh, the growth opportunity is enormous there. Yes. What I wonder, though, is uh, more than a decade ago, maybe almost two decades ago, the Chinese government set out a, a, a five-year plan mm -hmm. that they've been updating where they essentially wanted, I want to say, about four really big car companies mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and maybe three or four smaller, medium ones. And instead, they've got a zillion mm -hmm. car companies. Mm -hmm. It's got to come to an end at some point. When do you think that might be, and do you think the government will push for that? <clears throat> Great question, John, and this is so, unless one lives in China for a long, long time, you're always waiting for consolidation to happen. It doesn't happen. So it's so frustrating. Why isn't there consolidation? Any other market in the world, you come back to, it's not a market economy. It's a politically driven. So you have a lot of little Chinas within China, and each of those little Chinas, provinces, has its ambitions to set up its own auto industry, and it's not going to be the first one to shut down. That somebody else shut down first. So then you go, but what about inefficiency? It's so inefficient. Yeah, okay, Chinese, there's swarms of Chinese inefficiency, but at the end of the day, they build more cars than anyone else. So uh, forever I've been waiting for the day where there's a consolidation. There's only four players, only three players. But it's not in the... It, it isn't. But even though you've got all these uh, little companies and their state governments or provincial yeah. governments are supporting them, someday you got to pay the bills. Someday. They're not making money. I can guarantee you they're not making they're money. They're not making money and the taxpayers funding it. So this is where it gets interesting. With the tariffs of the Trump administration for the first time in 30... Ever since China opened up, the Chinese consumer and the Chinese businessman is saying... That profit machine of shipping to the United States, that's in danger? Ooh, I'm not going to be so... The money spigot that's been on in foreign direct investments, exports, is not guaranteed anymore. Uh, maybe we need to... Maybe the money does start to run out. But until now, it hasn't. So in the, in the, you look just like the, electri the electrified or electric vehicle sector in China. I went to the mm -hmm. Shanghai Auto Show and, and did the thing that probably most people from outside China do. You wander around and you see these electric vehicle brands, oh. startup brands, some of which you kind of heard of, 
um, like Neo, which I've yeah. heard of, and, and some which I've absolutely not heard of at all. Mm -hmm. But there's, there's, I don't know, a dozen of them at least, and this is just walking around the show. And they all seem, I mean, they all seem to be getting capital from somewhere. Getting capital, yes. So that, so, until, right, and so there they all are. They, they, I'm, they don't make a lot of sense, probably most of them. Uh -huh. um, but as long as the capital's on, there they are. Right, the, the, the formula works like this. Recently I visited this town called Zibaw, middle of nowhere, Shandong province, three hours south of Beijing. There is a startup, EV startup, called Guojin. Doesn't mean anything, no one ever heard of it. I had never heard of it, I lived in China forever. Here's this company with a brand new plant, 200,000 capacity, and a prototype EV. Have you ever built cars before? No. Do you know anything about car market? No. Who's your consumer? It doesn't matter. Uh, how did you get the money, a billion dollars plus, to put this factory here? Oh, that's easy. The city government said we should have a car industry here, and then they told the banks to lend the money to us. <laughs> Done. So in a sense, <laughs> I said, your, your customer is the bank, or no, is the city official in charge, then he directs the loans. And the better story that company could tell about, oh, we're going to export to the United States, we'll have great technology, our volumes will be huge, the better, the bigger the loan from the government. So it's so different from what we know here in the United States, it's hard to conceive of, but it happens every, you're at the auto show. How many of those companies did you see? One or two, you saw a dozen? Oh, no, yeah, easily, easily 10 to a dozen. Uh -huh. And I didn't hit every hall, it's too big a show. And aren't there hundreds registered to build electric there, vehicles? There are, there are technically, according to the Wall Street Journal, other newspapers, publications, over 400 right. individual electric vehicle companies in China. Now, 99% of those will eventually disappear, but for the time being, the way China runs, the government sets a mandate, the banks give the loans, and everybody crosses their fingers and hopes it works well, out. Well, and for, at least as a short-term play, it seems like they can also, to the extent that they can build any vehicles at all, they can make a market in credits. Mm -hmm. and, yes. And, mm -hmm. and kind of sell those and That's generate right. something. That's right. We're getting down to the very end, so I need mm -hmm. a real, real quick answer on this. Have U.S. and really Western companies put too many eggs in the China basket? No. If, if anything, should put more eggs in there. Why? Because if you look at China and the United States, together they account for almost half of global sales, half of global profits. If you're going to be competitive globally, you better be competitive in China. If anything, the U.S. needs to double down, put more resources, better products, electric vehicles, get in there, fight the fight. Wow, really good. Michael Dunn, anytime you're back in the city, man, you come to, uh, on the show. This has been fascinating to talk Terrific. with you. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you, John. Michelle, Joe, thank you guys, too. Thank Thanks. A very interesting discussion. Okay. Thank you. Underwriting for the production of AutoLine this week has been provided by RSM. challenges specific to your business by working with trusted advisors who help turn obstacles into opportunities. Experience the power of being understood. RSM, audit, tax and consulting for the middle market.